Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. So the, the topic is life is sacred, and I want to be able to explore a little bit about what that means and also why it matters and also then what the implications for this way of thinking and, and living are for health and healthcare providers. So the first thing, what is my theological foundation? I think it's important just to get this on the table because if we don't have a, a, a proper starting point, or at least if you don't have a good sense of the assumptions that are driving the work that I'm doing in this presentation, uh, you might be a little bit puzzled. So let me put my cards on the table, so to speak. My opening and fundamental assumption is that every creature and every place is a material site where the love of God is daily and practically intimately at work. That's pretty simply said, but I don't think that it has been very much appreciated because on the one hand, you could say that it's simply a, a sort of level of consciousness that we might come to where we think that places and creatures are material sites where the love of God is at work. But to really grasp what this way of thinking is about, you have to go beyond just the level of consciousness, I think, and try to get to the level of our sympathies and then even more deeply the level of our affections. And this is not a simple thing. And I want to start by drawing a parallel between what I think is, is being asked for here when you think about something like environmental philosophy, which is another area of teaching that I do. When we teach environmental philosophy and ethics, it's fairly customary to do a kind of timeline chart where we say that if we go back into the earlier stages of human philosophical and ethical thinking, it was pretty clear that the moral community was a rather small subset of not just the world, but a small subset within humanity. That if we go back to ancient Greece, for instance, the moral community was really a community that was populated only by men. And a whole bunch of people were, of course, excluded from the sphere of deliberation and also the sphere of concern so that there could be classes of, of women, children, slaves, barbarian. These are all folks who were not deemed to be within the moral community and therefore worthy of our consideration. And then what often happens in the histories of environmental philosophy and ethics is that the scope of the moral community expands. And it expands in sort of gradual ways so that eventually we get to land-holding men. Magna Carta, for instance, speaks this way. Or we might get so radical as to suggest that it's not just land-owning or white men, but maybe all men. But then, of course, we know historically that is not exactly uh, how this gets worked out because so many men are excluded, not to mention all the women, all the children. And so over time, we see that the expansion of the moral community comes to include 
women. Voting rights, for instance, is an example. Emancipation Proclamation is another one. But we also know that these efforts, while they have some sort of legislative or even policy implications, they often don't reflect the expansion of our effective sensibilities so that even in the Declaration of Independence, we know that we start with this phrase, all men are created equal with the full realization of the fact that it's in fact not all men who are included in that declaration. But the real innovation comes really in 1964 with the Endangered Species Act, because this becomes a signature moment in the history of environmental thinking in which it's not just human beings who now come under the umbrella of some form of protection, but species that are on this endangered list, because it's assumed that these species matter. There's also the Wilderness Act, which another, another very, very important piece of legislation, which said that also certain lands, uh, often picturesque or scenic, but these lands are also worthy of protection. And therefore also we might say a moral or at least political consideration. So you see over this timeline that we start with a very small group of men that expands to include more men, eventually to include women, uh, minorities, races, and children. And then, of course, now questions about people with disabilities of varying kinds. So the question, of course, is whether or not this expansion, which is certainly an expansion of consciousness, has had at its corollary something like the expansion of sympathies and affections. And of course, we could talk about this at, at great length and, and come to a conclusion that in many instances, that expansion has not exactly happened. I wanna suggest that there might be a parallel theologically uh, for thinking about the expansion of who falls within the scope of consideration. Theologically, we have heard over many, many centuries that God has love for people. The question is, well, which people? And you can talk to different folks at different times, but what is very clear is that for some people, at least, it's only a small group of people, maybe even just the chosen nation, who are admitted into the, the sphere of the direction or object of God's love. But then that might expand, and we might be so generous as to say that it's really all people that are beloved by God, not just a certain chosen people or a certain people who have a particular look or genetic profile. I mean, we know historically how Christians have been involved in all sorts of maladventures in which uh, whole set, sets of people, whole races, classes of people are considered to be savages or uh, worthy of extermination even. This is a, a sordid history, of course, but what we are hoping is that as we learn more about God's own life in the world, that we might see that God's love is much more expansive than we can imagine. And I think in my own reading of history, what has been a source of great dismay is to see how many efforts have been launched by various people through time that want to restrict the love of God, not just to certain groups of people, but certain um, spheres of, of life even. Now, the beginnings of something like environmental theology begin in the 1960s, uh, again, a very important time of ferment, I think, in at least the American consciousness. We could talk about what's going on in other parts of the world, but 
there was this rise of uh, what's called Christian stewardship writing and thinking, which said that human beings actually do have to take care of this planet because God gave it to human beings to steward. And there's a lot to be said about stewardship ways of thinking, but one of the things that's very clear is that at least now something like the non-human world is being brought into the scope of consideration, but it's often brought into that sort of umbrella of consideration under very austere terms such that it's maybe the case, maybe that God loves non-human creatures, maybe loves the places in which humans and creatures reside together, but not really a full admission that God's love is directed to bumblebees and butterflies and chickens and worms and watersheds. And so I would argue we still have a long ways to go because my point in saying that creatures and places are the material sites where the love of God is at work is not simply to say that God happens to love creatures. No, it's, it's a much more radical claim, which is to say that every creature, every square inch of this earth is in fact the material manifestation of God's love. And these manifestations take various sensory forms in the forms of obviously taste and sight and, and smell and touch and so forth. But what would it mean for us if we saw every body as a material site where you encounter, where you can touch the love of God? How does that change the way we might think about the world? And my reason for thinking this way is, is fundamentally this. Nothing exists by necessity. Everything that exists is contingent. This is what it means to say that God creates the world from nothing. If that is in fact the case, that things only exist because God wants them to exist, and as theologians have said over the years, the reason God wants something other than God to exist is that God loves for something other than God to be. And that God in loving creatures to be wants them to achieve the fullness of their lives. This is a, a deeply radical thing to say, because now it means that love, God's love, is the only reason why anything is at all. And if God's love is the reason for why anything is at all, then we should be looking at everything as a witness to this love. And that ought to then deeply inform our modes of perception, but also our modes of engagement. And I think this is something that needs to be said over and over again, because in this book that I have written called This Sacred Life, I, I started by talking about what I take to be two fundamental, um, what, what shall we call them, uh, uh, drivers of our contemporary period. There are drivers that go under the rubrics of the Anthropocene, and then also what I call the transhumanist urge. And what I argue in these two initial chapters is that in both of these urges and, and phenomena, what we're seeing is a rejection of this world. And what I mean by it is this, in the Anthropocene, for those of you who don't know the term, it was developed by earth system scientists around the year 2000. Their fundamental claim was that we are no longer living in the Holocene. The Holocene was the period that has begun roughly 12,000 years ago. It's in this time period that human beings have enjoyed a relative stable climate, which has enabled the development of agriculture, 
the growth of the civilizations that have you know, dominated our historical chronicling. But that's no longer the case. We don't live in the Holocene anymore, they argued, because now human beings have become so powerful through their technologies, their economic policies, that there is no longer a place on earth, there is no longer a process, whether it be a bio, geochemical, ecological process, that doesn't in some way reflect this human economic and technological power. And as a result, we shouldn't call our time any longer the Holocene. We should call it the Anthropocene because human beings, obviously not all human beings, some, um, again, we'll come back to the phenomenon of the white man, the powerful who use violent force uh, to bring about the transformation of this world. But this is a feature now of our world so that whether you look at weather, whether you look at uh, small organisms, whether you look at um, habitats, whether you look at the North Pole or the South Pole, look at glaciers, you look at all the different manifestations of life from an earth systems perspective. And what they tell you is that we can no longer describe any of these things as natural because so much is being affected by what human beings have done. What this means is we've entered into a period of what we might call ontological instability or ontological ambiguity because we no longer have a clear sense for what things, what creatures are. And this, what we might call plasticity about creatures has put us in this novel position where human beings are going to decide the future of species, not just whether or not there will be species, but whether or not the species will be tailored to suit our desires for improvement or enhancement of varying kinds. This leads very carefully or closely, I think, into what I call the transhumanist urge which is this idea that human beings, just like the earth is to be terraformed, we might say that human beings are also to be what bioformed or genetically formed to meet certain kinds of expectations for what we think a human life can be. Both transhumanist urges, and I, I go into more detail about how even if you don't believe that you're going to sort of upload your brain into software that can then be put onto multiple mechanical avatars that circulate the galaxy. I mean, there's lots of versions of how the transhumanist dream might be realized, but I would say even things like our submission uh, to machines and our, our, des our desires to develop AI and so forth. Not that all of these are awful, I wanna be clear, but what so much of this reflects is a fundamental discontent. The world is not good enough as it is, and human bodies are not good enough as they are. And reflected in this discontent with our places, with our world, with ourselves, with our bodies, is a fundamental disdain for the love of God. Actually, I would argue it's a rejection of the love of God because circulating within that is this assumption that what God has made is really deficient. And we have the example of many transhumanists who speak exactly in that language. Well, they won't often use the word God, but they'll say things like mother nature has deprived us of our own perfection. And so we must reject what mother nature has given and take control of nature ourselves so that we can design a world much more to our own liking. It's sad to say 
that so many spiritualities have contributed to this very, uh, what I would call self-despising, world-despising posture. And it's the spiritualities of dualism that, that I think are, are fairly well known to people. The idea that it's really the soul that matters and not the body. And by not thinking that the body matters, that means that all the bodies to which human beings are inextricably bound, they're not going to matter either. And so we have this idea that the goal of the life of faith, the highest spiritual attainment, is for the soul to be alone with God somewhere else in a heaven that is far, far away. And in arguing for this kind of dualist spirituality, what we forget, I think, is that heaven, as described, I think, in Scripture, is not fundamentally about our transportation to another realm far, far, far away, an ethereal disembodied realm. It's not about transportation. It's about transformation. It's about how do we see in the places that we live on earth, how do we see in the bodies that populate our created world, the love of God at work as the only power, so that as scripture says, only the power of God is at work. So God is all in all. So heaven is not about transportation somewhere else. Heaven's about the transformation of this world, which is reflected in the Lord's prayer. But I think even more importantly, it's reflected in Jesus's own ministries. These are ministries of, of healing, of feeding, of exercising, of befriending. These are ministries that presume that bodies matter, that the compassionate touch of bodies, that attending to bodies is supremely important. And I think the reason this is so is that Jesus understands that bodies are not just the occasional objects where God's love might be directed, but that these bodies are actually where the love of God is embedded, but is now being temporarily frustrated by illness, by loneliness, by hunger. And therefore, what Jesus does in the miracles is he liberates these creatures so that the love of God that is deep within them can be realized. And they might experience what, what John calls abundant life or the fullness of life. Now, it's very important to see that Jesus's ministries are incarnate ministries because these are ministries that are fundamentally about helping us learn to dwell with each other through our bodies. The question now would be, why, why has this been so difficult for people, not just to accept on a conscious level, but on a deeply sympathetic and effective level? And I think we could spend a lot of time trying to discuss what some of those reasons might be, but I think a fundamental one is that bodies are sites of suffering and pain. Bodies and places are highly vulnerable realities. And human beings, I think, have great difficulty with vulnerability, even though, as I argue in the book, vulnerability, dependence, need of each other are fundamental markers of what we might call our creaturely condition. So think about if you decide to make your life an instrument, a vehicle through which the love of God might go to work in a place, in a community, 
one of the things you can discover very quickly is that the bodies that you direct your attention and energy toward, they're not always cooperative. They often frustrate, even our own bodies frustrate ourselves. I mean, I am now getting to that stage where I get deeply frustrated about the fact that my body can't do the things I used to do when I was 18 or 20 years old. So what do we do in the face of this vulnerability, this fragility, this need that is built into our creaturely condition? I think one of the things that we do is we desire control. We desire to figure ways to deny our vulnerability. And when we deny our vulnerability and we decide that control is going to be the mode by which we engage ourselves, our bodies, whether it's through terraforming, through bioenhancements or what have you, what we're going to end up doing is unleashing violence upon the world. Because the moment we try to make bodies and places submit to our desire for what we want them to be, for how we want them to behave, we're going to discover that to do it effectively, we have to use violence. Because to come into the presence of creatures is to recognize that they have their own lives. They have their own modes of fulfillment that don't necessarily align with ours. And so when we give our work our affection, our care to other creatures, we have to learn in really, really important practical ways something about our own impotence, our own ignorance, and certainly our own impatience, which is why it's so important for us to have in mind constantly over and over again that the realities that we encounter, whether those be places, non-human creatures, or fellow human bodies, this is why it's so important for us to remember that before us is not an object, is not a dead inert thing, but before us is a material embodied expression of the love of God working itself out. And then to figure out how is that love of God being frustrated by conditions, how it's being stymied by lack or abandonment or abuse, and then figure out how can we enter into those places to be a loving presence, a companionable presence, one that seeks to honor, to be courteous and respectful of the love of God that is being revealed there daily, moment by moment. Now, in the book, what's important for me to do is to resist the kind of anthropology that is a feature of our modern period. And it's something that Warren Kinghorn alluded to earlier on, which is to, to describe human beings as fundamentally individuals. And so in the book, I spend a fair amount of time trying to describe what I take to be two very, very fundamental feature of our embodied creaturely condition. And they are rootedness and life in a meshwork. So let me just say briefly what I mean by both of these terms. If you are familiar with the hierarchy of being, which is a long-standing feature of Western philosophy, the idea is that at the bottom of this hierarchy, we find inanimate matter, soil, rocks, these sorts of things. But then above that, we find the lives of plants and the lives of animals, humans, the highest animal above humans, angels, and at the top, God. And this is a hierarchy that has informed a lot of, of humanity's thinking in Western cultures. And the assumption has been that what is below perhaps isn't very important, right? And so you can trace the hierarchy of being in terms of what I said earlier, 
in terms of the expansion of our scope of moral or even philosophical consideration. Now, what this hierarchy of being has done is it has taught us to think that, for instance, plant life is far beneath us because we are so superior uh, to plants. And one of the reasons we think this, of course, is that human beings have the capacity to, to move about locomotion, but also that human beings are capable of self-reflective thought. And I don't want to minimize these capacities because they are signature capacities for human beings and they're very important. But what concerns me with this way of thinking is that by disdaining plant life, by thinking it is beneath our consideration and concern, we have thereby also thought that human beings are thereby not rooted beings like plants are rooted beings. And this has been a huge mistake because what we have learned more recently from foresters, plant ecologists, is that the lives of plants are far more sophisticated than we've ever thought, and that we have, in fact, much to learn from plants in terms of their availability, their exposure, or to put this in a wonderfully provocative and beautiful framing. Think of Robin Kimmerer's uh, admonition in her beautiful book, Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says that she longs as a person to be like a plant that is good medicine to the world that nurtures it. What would it be like for us to be so rooted that by being where we are, we are sources of nourishment to others? Because what we're learning is that plants do not live as individuals. They live in terms of communities, in terms of dense webs of relationship, which the more extensive those relationships are, the healthier, the more resilient these plant communities can be. So that for instance, one of my favorite examples is if you think about a single rye plant, just one plant given a few weeks of growth in high quality soil, it will extend roots that, that exceed 700 miles. And if you add the fibers, the filaments that attach to roots, the total length ends up to being in the thousands of miles. So a root system reflects the desire for connection because it, re it reflects also this acknowledgement that when we are deeply connected, that the, the bonds of connection become the bonds of life that not only nurture life much more richly, but also make life more resilient, more able uh, to survive difficulty, traumatic times. And we see this in, in forest communities, for instance, in which the root systems become this vast, what Michael Pollan calls a wood wide web, in which there's all kinds of support, give and take communication happening. Of course, it's not verbal communications, it's chemical, but nonetheless, these root systems reveal a way of being, which is so important for human beings to recover. Again, not because I wanna reduce us to plants, but because we need to understand that our ability to move about notwithstanding, we are in fact rooted. And the proof of that is every time you breathe, every time you drink, every time you eat, every time you touch. And as Aristotle said, you are never bereft of touch. So contact with the world and sometimes in the most intimate forms as when we breathe and drink and eat, this is simply who we are. And so to forget that we are biological 
needy, vulnerable, interdependent beings is one of humanity's fundamental mistakes. And in forgetting that rootedness, we actually learn to despise what we depend upon and in our despising degrade and destroy. And obviously from an Anthropocene and ecological point of view, this is something of the greatest urgency because we are rendering so much of this planet uninhabitable. And we, you know, we can talk about what some of the manifestations of that are, but the question from a health point of view is how is it possible for us to advocate for the health of people if the planets, the planet rather, or more specifically the habitats, the neighborhoods that we depend upon, that we live from, live through, are being systematically destroyed, exhausted, or abandoned. There is no healthy human life apart from the flourishing context that make human living possible. So the rootedness, that's one very important idea. The second major idea that I think is important for us to recover is that human life is not a solitary life. It's not a single life. It's not an autonomous life. It's not an autarkic life. That human life is meshwork life. It's an idea that Tim Ingold, an anthropologist who taught for many years at Aberdeen, uh, has really developed in a number of essays. Uh, I highly recommend his book called Being Alive, if you're interested. But what a meshwork conception does is it doesn't say simply that human beings have relations. No, much more radically, human beings are their relations. And this is so important to understand because human beings, especially in Western frameworks of thinking, have operated under this fundamental, fundamental delusion that Tim Ingle calls the logic of inversion, which is to say that who you are as a person is something deep inside of you, and it's contained within the boundaries that we call our skin. And this reality that's deep inside of us, many, many call it a soul, what have you, um, we are our souls working ourselves out through bodily movements, right? So when I wave to you, it's something inside of me that is prompting me to wave to you as an expression of my friendliness toward you. Now, what Ingold says is that this logic of inversion has been deeply destructive because it misunderstands who in fact we are. So that rather than thinking about human beings as sort of cut off who then engage a world, we have to instead see ourselves as arising out of the world in very complex forms of symbiogenesis. It's not a very um, attractive word, but another way to describe it is, is that we only become with others all the time. So that even if you think from the very origins of who you are, you are what? The coming together of egg and sperm in a womb and we are from the moment of our conception already bound up in the lives of others, most basically a mother who eats and drinks and therefore is obviously bound up in the lives of plants and animals and weather systems, systems of photosynthesis, decomposition, digestion, respiration, all of these complex physiological activities that what draw us more deeply into the lives of other creatures. And what I like to point to is I want to say, if you want to really understand what it means to be a human being, look at the belly button, even though we don't want to show those to everybody, but the belly button is the physical reminder that we have always only ever been 
connected, such that if we had not ever had an umbilical cord, we could never have been at all. <clears throat> now, this idea of the meshwork, it unravels the logic of inversion because we discover that rather than being the source of our own lives from the inside, we are only who we are, only could ever be who we are, ever only grow into who we are through these processes of dependence and co-becoming with creatures, big and small, visible, invisible, seen, heard, touched, or not. And one of the examples I think is very powerful to develop here would be what we now understand about the microbiome that is in each one of us. If we think about it just in terms of our digestive systems, we know that the microbiome consists of billions, billions of critters and species, small, large, unknown, unseen, unnamed in many instances. And we know that those creatures are absolutely indispensable to human flourishing, whether it be processes of digestion, but also in disease prevention, immunological defense, growth, we know that the microbiome is so, so important. And so when we eat, we don't even eat just for ourselves, but we eat for this microbiome because we never eat just as solitary beings. Our eating always stitches us into the lives of creatures that not only host us, but we host as well. And so life becomes this dance of hospitality in which we learn to welcome each other learn and welcome each other also to understand each other and understanding of each other, learning how we can be sources of nurture to each other. Now, I know I need to wrap this up quickly, but one of the things that's so clear is that the healing arts are absolutely essential to this work because I think people in healthcare are ideally positioned to help us understand something about our vulnerability our fragility, our basic inescapable need. And in drawing us into an appreciation for what this is, we might be able to develop the postures that are absolutely crucial for us to not just come into the presence of each other, but then to be the sort of presence to each other that is an affirming, a nurturing, a healing, a befriending, a companionable presence. And this, of course, I say, is fundamentally an art because it is not to be taken for granted, first of all, that we even know who we are dealing with when we're trying to understand their particular needs. How do we best welcome soil? How do we best welcome people who come into our homes? How do we best welcome viruses? How do we best welcome all sorts of creatures, large and small, and the truth is that in many instances, we don't have an idea because we've never taken to become attendants of the creatures that we need to flourish with, that we need to participate in their nurture, or sometimes just leave alone to nurture because our own attempts to help can actually be a source of pain. So the healing arts, I think, are going to be ideal sites for us to try to work together to develop this new understanding that we need to have, and not just a new understanding, but a new set of affections and sympathies so that we can begin to appreciate how our lives, every one of our lives are always stitched together 
in this vast, incomprehensible meshwork of living in which we are constantly intersecting, needing, helping the lives of all those who intersect with us. To put this in a theological way, I think the healing arts, but not just the healing arts, I think also agricultural arts, I think political arts, what we most want to see happen is how we can embed in these forms of art the love of God as the primary inspiration. Because again, remembering that when we engage as politically minded people, economically minded people, health minded people, what we're really doing is we're trying to elevate the love of God that's at work in places and creatures so that then our efforts become one in which we try to so have our loves disciplined that in the disciplining of our love, it joins with the love of God that is everywhere at work in the world, everywhere at work in creatures all the time. And so this joining of our love with the love of God embedded in places and creatures becomes the pinnacle of human existence. And I think for that, we're going to need, obviously, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, be thinking about the fruit of the Spirit as primary virtues, we might say, that can lead us into what this life requires, right? To come into patient uh, attention with each other, a loving attention with each other, self-controlling attention with each other. These are going to be very important virtues. And for this, we again have much to learn, I think, uh, from, from doctors who are attempting this work practically. But then behind this, of course, we could use the great physician that has often gone by the name of Jesus. So thank you so much. And I now look forward to having some conversation with you. Thank you so much. Uh, I am really grateful to everything here. We're going to enter a time of, of Q&A now. And as uh, those of you are, are already doing, uh, what I'd ask you to do, if you want to ask a question, we'd actually love to be able to ask these uh, in person, is to go to the bottom right hand of your screen uh, on reactions and raise your hand. And I will call on you in the order of, um, of raised hands. And I also see one question in the chat that we'll get to if we if we can. Also, a couple of you, although uh, Dr. Wurzbeth's uh, notes that they've gone well beyond this quote, a couple of you have asked for the Wendell Berry quote that I started with uh, from his essay, Health is Membership, and so I'm placing that in the chat right now. Uh, we have a lot of raised hands and not much time, uh, Norman, so first we'll uh, ask Ian Bailey to unmute and ask his question. Thank you, Dr. Kinghorn, and uh, it's great to study with you again, Dr. Wurzba. Um, I was just uh, wondering uh, about the Baconian theology, uh, how far did that set us back? And did we need to go through that thought to get to the awareness that you've pointed out today, right? This intertwining of theology and environmental friendliness, uh, quite opposite of uh, Francis Bacon's thoughts, right? I, I just didn't know if that has set us back tremendously. Yeah, it, it, it truly has. So good to see you, Ian, first of all. But so first of all, I think what I want to say is that this, this, this modern project, and I, you know, that's a crass the way to put it, but the most astounding thing about it is that it rendered the world dead, right? Because by rendering it dead, it became open to all sorts of manipulation by us, which of course was very, very important 
when you think about the projects of imperial expansion, the projects of commodification, extraction, that we are well aware are the defining kinds of features of modern economies. And from a theological point of view, you have to describe it as a catastrophe. Because if what I've been saying is, is true, that every place, every creature, every human being is the material embodied site where the love of God is at work, there is absolutely no way that one could say we got dead matter that we're dealing with that is open to endless manipulation. So what, what this Baconian vision did by rendering the world dead, by rendering it in Cartesian terms to just extended stuff, what it did, it not only evacuated the world of God, but it rendered us supremely alone in a dead world, right? So when you think about indigenous cultures or even agricultural societies that existed until the modern period in European context, at least, there was an imbued sense of the vitality of places and living things. And, and this became very, very important. And we can talk about what some of its forms were, but what it did is it put in place something like what we could call the sanctity of life, the sanctity of places, the sense that something can be violated. And of course, when things are reduced to dead matter in motion, the sense of violation just disappears. So yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Next uh, question is from Therese Lysot. Hello, everyone. Hello, Warren. Thanks, Norm, for this really fabulous presentation. Um, I just wanted to uh, raise um, a point for consciousness and then a question, too. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Laudato Si, but in case other folks in the room aren't, I was just struck from your first uh, opening assumption, but then all the way through about the alignment between um, what you're articulating here and Pope Francis's encyclical uh, Laudato Si. Uh, and I just wanted to read like one of my very favorite passages from that document um, for a minute before my question, uh, where he says, our insistence that each human being is an image of God should not make us overlook the fact that each creature has its own purpose. None is superfluous. The entire material universe speaks of God's love, his boundless affection for us. Soil, water, mountains, everything is, as it were, a caress of God. Oh, I love it that you said that, Therese. That's a uh, favorite you know, passage of mine in that, that very, very important encyclical. Thank and you. And then it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. So that's for the other folks who might not be uh, conversant as, uh, they're more conversant with Barry than Pope Francis, but put Pope Francis on your list. Um, but my, my question or my, um, uh, the other point I want to raise here, you know, you talk about the hierarchy of being that has formed our consciousness, um, which I think is important. But the, the other piece, and maybe Warren can speak to this too, is how that same hierarchy got embedded in our anthropology, our understanding of the human person, right? So even in Aquinas, right, there's this hierarchy between our, our intellectual part of our soul and our vegetative part of the soul, right? So that right. the intellect, even in the person, becomes more important than the body. Right. Yeah. And, you know, even though he's arguing against Gnosticism, there is this sort of Gnostic devaluation of bodies uh, in our anthropology, you know, so that people who are more associated with their bodies, right. women and servants and people of color are less valued than people associated with their intellects, men, scientists, yeah. right. et cetera, philosophers, which I think, you know, 
not only you know inflects the ecological stuff you're talking about, but equally um, our medical ethics, right? So medical ethics uh, privileges autonomy, consent, yes. decision making, right, and devalues bodies because the same sort of hierarchy of being um, it, it, it continues to form our anthropology. But I think mm-hmm. it's related, you know. So what would a bioethics reimagined through your ecological theological lens look like? Um, anyhow. Yeah. Oh, that's that's fabulous, Therese. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, you're absolutely right that within the human person, we've set up a hierarchy, which of course has been deeply damaging. And and it's not just something that we you know worry about when we're thinking about how in sort of the the pursuit of spiritual excellence, for instance, it's it's as Plotinus said, it's the mind alone with the unknown one or something of that sort, which is a highly etherealized, highly male. And, you know, I, I still love Janet Soskis's essay where she says, why can't changing a diaper be a, a, a manifestation of some of the highest spiritual attainment, right? The ordinary day-to-day, the embodied activities of, of cooking, of cleaning, of home repair, of making things. And this is, you're absolutely right to say that the imaginations we have for the fulfillment of a human life are woefully inadequate when we take into account our rooted life, our creaturely existence. But I think there's another dimension to this, which is, which is also important to have on the table. And that is that when you think about something like the modern emancipatory ideal, which I, I wanna say straight up is something I endorse in so many ways, we should not forget that this modern emancipatory ideal was also fueled by a desire to be emancipated from embodiment, to be emancipated from natural places. And one of the ways this was most clearly communicated is that the people, often women, often slaves, often manual workers, those who actually had to work with material things in labor, physical muscle power labor, they were viewed to have a deficient labor. And it's still reflected that way today in our society, right? And I think COVID, has made it very apparent to us that the people who we think are the essential workers are the people who are doing the brain work, whereas the people who are raising children, teaching children, the people who are taking care of yards, the people who are processing, growing food, the people who are doing all the manual labor things, they don't really count. Uh, and now we've come to see that not only do they count, they are in fact the essential ones. And so there needs to be a major adjustment, reversal almost of what we think to be the most important kinds of activities and embodiment needs to be a clue, not just because we are our bodies, don't just have them, we are them, but our bodies always draw us into our entanglements with a bewildering array of other bodies. Thank you, Chris, for bringing in Laudato C and for that question. Our next question is from Susan Ketchin. Hi, Norman, this is Hi. Susan of John Prine fame. Oh, wonderful. Hey, um, <laughs> or hi. Hi. Um, I'm, my question is, as a musician yourself, uh, can you see or tell us how you can view music as a healing art? Oh, my, I love that question. Oh, so I, I, I have written about this. Just it's, it's in a book that's coming out next uh, summer. Oh. But there is this wonderful episode I want to draw your attention to. You may remember that England was populated by this bird called the nightingale. The nightingale has this beautiful sound, this melody that 
people have known for, for centuries. And of course, what was happening at the turn of the 20th century is that these birds were being wiped out, mostly through habitat destruction. There's a cellist, and I forget her name now, very famous, one of the most famous cellists performing in the teens and the 20s, traveled all around the world, was a regular guest in the Queen's residence and so forth. And she decided one day that she would go out into her garden in her estate and she would play her cello. And the nightingales oh. responded to her playing of the cello. And she was completely overwhelmed by the experience of these nightingales wanting to sing with her cello. And it was a deeply physical, emotional experience. And so she decided that the newly formed BBC needed to record this. So she had friends at the BBC studios and they said, we can't do this. We don't have recording equipment that can take us outdoors. How would we ever do something like that? But because of her influence, she managed to get them to come and do it. And so they recorded this and people listening to the BBC went berserk. <laughs> thousands upon thousands of people wrote in and talked about how hearing the song of the nightingale moved them. Oh. And it's a, it's a testimony, not just to the power of music to move our bodies, to introduce us into what we might call the larger harmonia mundi yeah. that is our world itself, right? God doesn't create a mute world. God creates a, a sounding world that is constantly in the varying modes of singing or as scripture sometimes even calls it praise. Mm -hmm. And people traveled from across the Atlantic to come hear her play her concerts in her garden with the nightingales. So what you're raising, Susan, is so, so important because the whole sensory, right, landscape that we inhabit, seeing, touching, tasting, mm -hmm. and listening is an important part for helping us understand that we are not alone and that we could make music, right? And I'll end my answer with this lovely line from the otherwise cranky Henry David Thoreau, where he says he woke up one morning from a dream in which he said his body was a musical instrument that it was like a flute through which the sounds of the world sang. But then he realized that in fact, so much of the time his body is not an instrument at all, but simply a dead place where nothing resounds. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Goodness, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are nearing the end of our time. We have two folks who wanna ask questions and we have another question in the chat around how to balance uh, infection control in the time of COVID with the privation of relationship that happens, especially in places like um, uh, inpatient care facilities. But what I'd ask is for Brendan Johnson and Susan Holman both to ask their questions. And then Norman, you can have the last word to answer okay. either of those and uh, whatever you'd like to say to end our time together. All right. We'll go first, Brendan, and then Susan. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wurz, but it's wonderful to hear you. Uh, sorry for tuning in from my car. My question is, you know, as, as a younger person, I feel primarily my feelings around the environment is one of desperation. Um, and like once there isn't a realization of how bad the ecological situation is, you know, people have said that we need to essentially be carbon neutral by 2030 if we want to stay under one and a half or two degrees Celsius. Um, and I think just this last week, it was uh, noted that there's now just as much plastic and concrete and metal as there is like natural biomass in the entire right. earth. And, and like, 
even in my own life, I'm from Minnesota and I remember a ton of snow and I just got done when I was a kid, snow days. And like right now I just got done cross country skiing and there's like bear patches that you ski between of, of grass. And like, I, I think it's not unfair to say like the blood of our children is on our hands in many ways. And, and many people, especially in the global South or more vulnerable experience our white Christian American civilization as a culture of death. Right. And, and like the distance between where we are and where we need to be is so vast and i think that i appreciate because you kind of give the anthropology and the notion of creation that is that beautiful thriving shalom vision yeah. but i'm i'm really curious about the the political moves that need to be made because i mean quite frankly like we need to upend our system of imperialism right. and and right. capitalism right now this idea that we can just grow forever and ever and ever just is going to be the death of the earth because that's the logic of cancer right um so I, i'm curious like what my question would just be what kind of politics does this transition into it and especially with a focus on like practices of resistance against this culture of death um yep. yeah so, that's a great question you. brandon yeah no it's a no, really, really no, let, let me interrupt you. let's get susan holman's question oh, okay and sorry you yeah. can answer right. both or um and have the last word thank you sure yeah, hi. Um, I can also write, correspond if, if there's not time. I wanted to basically thank you so much. This is, this is phenomenal. I'm actually teaching a religion, spirituality, and global health course this semester where I, I, I seized your book and I'm using several chapters from it. So I tuned in today to try to get a better sense of you oh, know, thank you. what your thinking is. Good to meet um, you. Yeah, you too. Uh, so thank you. And I, your, what you said reminds me so much of... Um, the, using early church fathers and writings related to humanity as a social creature, the sociality of the ancient world. Um, and actually I've taught also in my other class, music as a physical substance is, is part of the ancient world's view and therefore a healing art. Um, so I guess I mainly wanted to just thank you and also you know, ask how you know, practically, what would you tell students who say, how do we best welcome um, viruses? Because my students <laughs> are undergraduates, they're very basic. And the other thing I wanted to point out is, um, if, are you familiar with Denise Kimber Buell's work? Because she's done, she has this wonderful chapter called The Microbes and Numa That Therefore I Am. No, send that to me if you can, please. I'll do that. It. So I'll stop talking, but thank you. Yeah. Oh, my, such good questions. And they all would take a long time to answer. So, first of all, what are the politics of all this? Um, super important because one of the, what we might call, not maybe disaster is too strong of a term, was the idea that when we are facing ecological degradation, the thing to do is emphasize personal virtue. And that means, you know, you know, drink fair trade coffee, don't use styrofoam. And if you're really virtuous, you'll buy a Prius. And, and I want to say that that's all rubbish. I mean, not that if you buy a Prius, it's perfectly fine. But what I want to say is by making it a matter of personal virtue, we basically let systems off the hook. We've let politicians off the hook. We've let economic leaders off the hook. And what we're talking about is the need for systems change. And that means a political effort. And so what we need to be doing is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on governments, business leaders, educational leaders, religious leaders, to help them understand that we're not going to be able to solve, let alone address any of the things that are most important to us if we're not at the same time addressing the structures that are in place, that are, that are going to continue to be in place unless citizens demand their dismantling and then creating an imagination for something new, better. And this is, again, where I would say it's so important for us to start with this assumption that what we are doing is we're living in a world where the love of God is materially manifest. 
because the source of our hope is not in ourselves. The source of our hope is by participating in the love of God that is everywhere at work. And to do that, you first of all have to come into the presence of the love of God. And that means spending quality time. I mean, quality time, slow time with people, with places, in neighborhoods, in watersheds, so that you don't feel that you are bereft and alone in this Herculean effort to try to fix these worlds, these world problems. Um, we're, we're over time, Warren, I know. So I, I will wrap it up here. And, and let me just say that I'd, I'd welcome uh, any questions or further conversation with you if you want to reach out. And it's, it's, it's been a pleasure to be with you. And I thank you very much. And I, I appreciate so much that the work you all are doing with TMC. So carry on. Mm -hmm.